Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Welcome to Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is Hate City and the CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. Now, today in the show is Baz Raymakers, co-founder and creative director of Standby, a specialist design research organization for service innovation based in London and Amsterdam. Now, Bass is also co-founder of the Reach Network. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes for any of you who don't know what the Reach Network is. It's a global network of agencies specializing in human-centered design research. It's a wonderful organization and definitely worth checking out. Now, Bass is also a partner of This Is Doing and works alongside myself and a host of other amazing people. And some of the courses that Bass has live currently on thisisdoing.com revolve around life-centered design and designing for resilience. And we discuss in this episode the local differences of human-centered design and how people are currently researching and what are the common problems in this and how can we as practitioners become more culturally inclusive. Now, Bass is a wonderfully deep thinker and has fantastic insights into what we need to do to not only improve design, and that's with a capital D, but also how we can make more of a global impact with our work. Let's get into it. Baz Raymakers, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm fine. Under the circumstances. Where, absolutely. Where, where are we coming from today? From Amsterdam. It's, I've yeah. been in lockdown here in Amsterdam since mid-March. Oh, nice. You could be in worse places. Are you in the city? I am in the city. I'm looking at a canal right now, which is wow. really nice. What, what are the many canals? Yeah, there are many canals. This is voted actually the most beautiful canal of Amsterdam, so I'm very lucky. <laughs> As declared by Bass. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bass, um, for anyone who doesn't know you, let's start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Yes, fine. So I live in Amsterdam, but actually I also live in London, which is making this time a bit hard for me. I'm used to living one week Amsterdam, one week London. Hmm. That's because I run a design research studio together with my partner, Heike van Dijk, in Amsterdam and London. We have a a team of about 10 people across those two locations where we uh, actually do work for all kinds of organizations. We'll get to talk about that. I guess, yeah. and what is uh, using design methods to do research, basically. You know, I, I've known the work of, of Standby for, for, for quite a while. 
and you do some fantastic work in the design research space. And I should point out at the you know as a disclaimer, myself and Baz Baz is a partner in This Is Doing, which is our new um, training function that we've we've created as part of the This Is HCD ecosystem. I'm super excited about that. But today we're going to talk about how we can take global perspective on human-centered design while respecting local differences. And this is a this is a huge topic and something that has been very close to my heart since when I lived in Australia, where for the first time I started to question the methods of design. And today, you know, we're, we're going to get into those kind of conversations. But I'm interested in your perspective, Bas. How, how did this topic come about through your eyes? Well, mainly through uh, personal experience initially, I guess. There's that there's several routes. So the personal experience comes from uh, starting to do my PhD at the Royal College of Art in 2003 in London. And before that, before that, I only lived in the Netherlands, mostly Amsterdam. Mm. So, but but since then, I I've lived in London and Amsterdam as well, kind of 50-50. and that kind of gave me the personal experience of living in two cultures and realizing that they are quite different, however near they are, and however how many. Wars they have fought over the many years in the past. We've been very connected in all kinds of ways. But still, there's a very different culture there. And it's if you do design research, it's uh, really super important to be aware of that and to, to know that because those cultural differences really influence how people use services and what they expect from services. Yeah, no, absolutely. So... You know how are how are you currently seeing it? So I know you're you're very active in design research. What what are the problems? Is is it within the method or is it within the mindset, or both? I think it's first perhaps in the awareness that's not always mm. there. Also, mm-hmm. if you look at design schools, it's not really taught that much. True. Yeah. It's taught now a bit in um, TU Delft here, for instance, the biggest design school in the Netherlands. Hmm one of the biggest in the world as well. Yeah. And the College of Arts, where I did my PhD, it was present because so many cultures are present there. Mm-hmm. Same thing at Academy Eindhoven, where I've run a research group for eight years. 70% of the students there is from abroad. I think uh, at Royal College of Art, it must be similar. Mm. So you experience it, but again, there's relatively little reflection on it. Yeah, it's um, interesting because you know, from the Royal College of Arts perspective, and uh, this this is looking back at two thousand and three when you were studying there, uh, the RCA typically has a you know wide and diverse group of students at any given time. Why do you think it is that the, these questions weren't raised at that time in terms of how there's there's differences in in the awareness of how we're designing? What's changed? Royal College of Arts and also. Similarly, I think for Design Academy Eindhoven, the, the emphasis is very much on the on the person, on the individual, hmm. uh, and the personal expression that you that you develop there. Um, and that kind of pushes the kind of the cultural aspect, what you share with a group, a bit to the background. Yeah, so it's a, di- a different focus, so to speak. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. if you compare your Delft, which is industrial design, yeah, better focus. Not on the person so much, but it's on industry making mass products originally. That's where they yeah. come from. Yeah. So they can focus on the global. Let's produce the same thing for everyone in the world. So that's kind of the yeah. complete opposite. What I'm talking about is something in between those two extremes. 
Yeah. And my background is in industrial design. I studied industrial design in the National College of Art and Design in Ireland. And this wasn't taught. This wasn't a thing that our, our whole kind of mindset was creating products for scale and, you know, TVs and all this cool stuff. But what does it look like when you're actually doing the design and you're taking those into consideration where you're actually using what I would call strategic design methods to, to get a, get the outcome? Um, but, you know, in your experience in the current day, you're, you're seeing an enlightenment happening across the universities as regards there are differences globally. What, what has caused that, do you believe? In a way, maybe uh, paradoxically global culture. So the world, the world is coming together yeah. more and more. Obviously, the internet over the past 25 years since it became public. Mm-hmm has connected to worlds more and more. Yeah. And if you compare the, the media landscape, for instance, how we how we can see the world from afar uh, with 25 years ago, and it's mm. very different now. YouTube obviously didn't exist 25 years ago, but now we can see so many places in the world. Instagram yeah. shows us pictures from around the world. That's yeah. from, it's not possible to imagine a world without that, I guess, yeah. nowadays. Yeah, true. For me, it is. Since I was educated originally uh, in Amsterdam at the University of Amsterdam in, in British Cultural Studies. Hmm. And this was in the 1980s when we had none of those things. I had to take a bus to London to Foils to actually get my books. Really? So there was no other way to do it. You could kind of order a catalog from Routledge and then find a few books and then go there to kind of see what else you know, they had. So our tutors basically sent us on a bus to London to get our books. <laughs> Which I'm sure there's some brilliant stories of, you know, Bass and the class going over to get their books. Yeah, it wasn't a punishment. It was the start of enlightenment for Bass when you went into British culture for the first time to get your books. <laughs> yeah, right by bus at 5 a.m. in the morning. That's the right way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, so, that's kind of culture. Studies also really helped me uh, very early on, I guess. That's before I got into design, even to kind of understand how culture is formed and how culture is, is a living thing. We talked yeah. a lot about culture and how that is formed by people just by through their daily lives. And that's that's something we use still a lot in our practice, I must say, those kind of yeah. that kind of So awareness has been a big thing in terms of how you're designing. So being aware of the fact that things are, are different. And w- one of the first pieces of things where I started to question it was working in a global business, probably in the early 10s, 2010s. And we had to make the decision to design uh, a global website that was going to be used. So there was standardized templates, so to speak. And they're like, okay, so um, this is going to be used in the Middle East. So we need to make sure that the the text is going to work from right to left. And I was like, surely there's more things to consider than that. Like, yeah, it's not just about the text. Like, and there's all these, I was working at the time with John Hicks, actually, the, the iconographer. And John was a great steer because he'd done a lot of global work at that stage for Skype. And um, he started to give indicators and no, 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 no. Okay, listen, these are things we need to be aware of. We're, we're, we're working this design into the Middle East. There's a lot of cultural differences in terms of iconography and how things are going to be perceived over there. And so we started to question a lot of the design decisions and we, we started to make those kind of calls. 
but it was my first kind of foray into this world of thinking that actually, you know what, universalism is not is something that we shouldn't be striving for. So, yeah, not not what, in general at least, but I guess in some respects you could strive for it because one thing, of course, that we have acquired over the past twenty five years since since mm. the internet strongly is that we also all live in a global culture for the majority yeah. of humanity at least. That means uh, that we share a lot, but also that if we travel, if you travel or I travel to Shanghai and you kind of look at your phone, mm. if you are VPN, you can still feel at home when you look at your computer because it looks exactly the same. Yeah, you're carrying a piece of the piece of you with you. So yeah, there's that a... kind of a digital view on the world doesn't need to change because yeah. you're somewhere else. So that and. People kind of carry their kind of digital world with them around the world, but also it connects to many other people around the world. Mm. So we, we share it with people from all over. Yeah. So l looking at the common problems that persist in how we have been designing and what are you seeing? So what what are the, the pitfalls that people have let me rephrase that. What are the what are the pitfalls in, in thinking like this? I think a, a pitfall we find often is um, that people look quite a bit at the more functional usability side, and that's where I think global culture does exist hmm. because we have gotten used to what a drop down means or all those kind of visual cues that help us interact with interfaces for digital services. Yeah, but. We, Still, that's tested quite a lot, and even in in different countries, we don't do that work really. What we do for our clients is more what's often called foundational research, mm. kind of looking how does that fit in people's lives. Yeah, in different places in the world, that cultures we should not uh, limit also to kind of national cultures. It's also yeah. cultures or perhaps cultures of people who want to be close to nature. So those are also cultures. That's all kinds of cultures. Nationalism is only a nation state are relatively young mm -hmm. in the world, 200 years. There's other, many other cultures that have much longer histories. Yeah, no, absolutely. Other ones as well, obviously. Like youth culture is younger than nationhood. Yeah. So these cultures are also important. We have to figure out in that kind of foundational research which cultures actually have have kind of meaningful differences for the service that you're working on. So often you find lots of differences when you do this kind of research. For instance, let me give an example from an old project we did. Um, this is like almost 10 years ago, I think, for, for Nokia, where they wanted to understand the, the future of, uh, and also the present of digital writing. And we did that research in, in five scripts, also five locations. So it was a Latin script, Arabic script, Hindi, uh, Mandarin, and Cyrillic. So we, we had teams in five different uh, countries, people who were kind of locally mm -hmm. aware and kind of and they basically lived there for long times, grown up there most of the time. And we had to kind of look beyond this kind of functional stuff that you just talked about from, from left to right or from top to bottom or that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Really, what does writing mean? 
in China, for instance, we find we found that the 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 calligraphy of the script and the handwriting was really important for people in uh, in kind of meeting meeting others and kind of showing or showing off, you could say, their handwriting. Writing a poem, mm-hmm. they laughed in handwriting, taking a picture of it and then sending it. It's much more uh, important than actually being able to write a Chinese script on the on a screen. Yeah. So that's uh, something that goes much further back than purely the digital. The digital that needs to support yeah. your craft, basically, and kind of showing up your craft. I, I lived in Australia for, for a very long time, and I'm white, male, and, uh, you know, living in uh, an Australian culture was, you know, it just felt natural for me. It was like a very seamless process moving from Ireland to Australia, very similar culture in terms of humor and, you know, the dogma of, of society was was very similar. And then I started to work in, in the social impact space and I, I started to experience you know, quite a lot of dissonance when I started to look at how we design within, say, Aboriginal communities and Indigenous communities. I, I noticed, you know, huge, huge differences in how I would approach things. A good example for this was when doing design research, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to obviously need to, to do a workshop at some point. So I would email my stakeholders and I'd say, it's like, you know, you know, can we do this? And they're like, no. They can't, you know, we would need to get the community buy-in before we, we we do this. And I'd have to, you know, I would speak to them and I'd say to them, well, what's appropriate? And in, in a way, before I even got to the thing, the activity, I was using design research inclusivity to to get to the actual event. So I had to get, you know, an invitation to to do this by the elder and what I was going to do and how I was going to do it and making sure that they're a part of the process. And this is part of their culture. This is part of how indigenous communities work. And I had to basically say to them, it's like, I, I've got a lot of learning to do here because this is, I was out of my depth. I didn't have that experience. But the more I got into it, I noticed that the fundamental differences in society in, in their society, such as the Koori court, I'm not sure if you were the Koori court system in, in Australia, how they deliver um, justice versus how Western culture delivers justice are two very different things. By default, the Curry Court is a, is a very inclusive. It involves all parties in terms of the crime, in terms of the parents and the children and the cousins and the community and how they're going to actually inform the rehabilitation process. So it was very different. The, the actual fundamentals of society are very different for um, Indigenous communities. And that was I, admittedly, it was overlooked on my, on my part, part at the start. But once I started to see that light, I was like, okay, now I need to get more involved. I need to need to ask more questions about what's appropriate. Yeah, so that's yeah it's, see, it's a good example because it, it shows what we have seen uh, all the time, that these cultural differences, it's not just in the um, results that you get from the research that you need to be aware of that, but also in how you collect your data. Okay. Let's talk about that because that's interesting because I've had a little bit of experience in that, but I'd be interested to hear your perspective. Yeah. So one one of the things that came out of my time at the RCA and then also the many conferences I visited shortly after is that I created this international network, REACH, the yeah. REACH network, which is about 18 studios around the world 
based in, I think, just over 20 countries. Um, and they all do design research as at least part of their practice. Mm-hmm. So we work with them if we need to um, do international research. So then what we tend to do is to kind of have one main contractor, this could be standby, who kind of figures out what is the the objective here of this study? What's the what's the main research question that we need to answer? And we develop a method or more, perhaps a, a scaffold of a method, perhaps. And then we um, kind of share this with the different partners in those countries where we need to collect data, where we need to do the research. And we ask them to translate this method into their local situation, how they think it should be done. So oh, they know the objective. And they know kind of what kind of data we're looking for, but they need to figure out the best way to to have that data. Nice. And that's and what, in that case, different approaches sometimes. Yeah. And what kind of differences were you seeing when you did for that? For instance, how you build rapport with people that you interview. So for instance, um, in India, we, we sometimes have traveled to these locations as well. Mostly not, but sometimes we do, sometimes with a client as well, to kind of see how the things go. You can actually get quite nervous if you do that, because you are in a in a visit, in an interview, when you're you're chatting in India, you're having cups of tea, and nothing is starting. <laughs> yeah. You think, this is supposed to be a two-hour interview or engagement. Yeah. I've lost an hour already. How am I going to do this? <laughs> so you yeah. get quiet, obviously. But it's... It turns out they they explain to you after that kind of first experience. You first need to kind of have a conversation with people. Sometimes you even have lunch, or you stay after for lunch to kind of build that rapport, mm-hmm. that rapport, and then you ease into the interview. If you would have that approach in um, in the US, yeah. people would get very nervous. What are you here for? Not for this kind of chatter, is yeah. it? Yeah, not I'm here to make cups of tea for you. So, <laughs> So it's it's really important that you kind of sense that in the right way. And these these are things that are not that not easy to explain. So that's why you need kind of on the method side, you need local people actually to do that. Another example yeah. is in, in Japan we found again and again you need to give very precise instructions. A lot of our methods are also quite creative. We ask people to make something or to draw something. In Japan, this can hugely backfire. Certainly when you do this in a group, because people feel nervous because it's not entirely clear what's expected from them. Yeah. So we have it to come up with exercises to put people at ease if it's if it's doing the opposite of what you intended. Absolutely. There's a, there's a few of the ones I remember when in, in Australia I was researching in a community and the the recording uh, of the session was inappropriate because and I don't mean this to be like a, you know, a, a sort of a, a war war story kind of uh, episode, but you know, th- it wasn't appropriate to, re- to record the voice, but also to use cameras in Aboriginal communities. There are, you know, things around that and that that reflect. I think it's I could be wrong here, but photographing is something to do with the soul, like stealing the soul if you take it a photograph. Does. Yeah, like stealing the soul, and it was. It was something that I well, would just leave 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 the technology aside and end up having a, a human conversation, and then afterwards I would spend the time writing my notes up, you know, actual physically hand, handwriting my notes, 
So if, if you do a global research, yeah. support that sensitivity. So not taking photographs perhaps in, in that particular context, but then you could, for instance, uh, draw some things instead. Okay. You could yeah. collect some things that they are fine with you, right? Taking with you, mm -hmm. but, uh, perhaps photograph them later. Yeah. Uh, or just show the objects in a presentation. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of find ways to alternative ways to get to a similar result, because of course, if you're doing global research, it's still important to have data that you can combine in a meaningful way from different locations in the end. Yeah. You can in all four locations kind of go off in a completely different direction with your data collection, because then you get a problem in analysis. Yeah. So are you saying that they, it's okay to have four different types of research methods that are culturally sensitive in different parts of the globe or do they, or should they be the same? No, they can be different, but I they think they, they should uh, give results. That's what you're after in the end. Yeah. There should be data that you can combine again into one analysis. Yeah. Therefore, it's very helpful to, to use use this idea of the unit of analysis. What is the unit of analysis of your research? And that could mm. be for a story. But that means you need to collect a lot of stories. Yeah. And then you can compare them in analysis. But if you yeah. collect kind of complete stories in three locations and in one location, you just have the beginning of a story and then mm. how it further then you have a problem. Yeah. So diary studies is is a technique that you know, I've mm -hmm. used in the past. Is that something that you would feel would be something that you'd use quite a lot? Yeah, we've used it a bit more over the past months, actually, also because of this yeah. um, current situation, we can't travel. Hmm. Uh, definitely, you can use that. Yeah, and we we find we get the best results if we have a conversation with participants uh, during the time of the diary study, so we can mm -hmm. actually look at what they've they produce and we respond to that firstly it, it creates a personal relation between you and a participant they feel they actually are writing it for someone and someone is looking at it and responding to it personally okay rather than writing it for a blood hole yeah so that's a big difference but also you can actually kind of see what's happening across your different participants and this already creates often some emerging insights hmm. you might to pursue a bit deeper so you can then ask follow-up questions to people um, so presumably well. you, you know when you say that are you able to you do, do you feel it's appropriate to use technology uh, for diary studies in that sense globally yeah. there's obviously certain instances where you can't well it depends of course on who you want to speak to mm -hmm. you need to make sure that people are comfortable to use technology yeah. for the kind of they talk about. Yeah. It can also help. For instance, we did a research recently in Japan and the US via diary study, but also some uh, online uh, workshops around uh, kind of how people feel about their health in relation to uh, going to the toilet. Okay. And then bit of a distance that technology creates can actually help you for people to speak a bit more freely about it yeah. than when you're just in opposite them at a table or something like that.
Yeah, absolutely. Because it could be could be quite embarrassing to to talk about something like that. So there's again very much culturally dependent. How embarrassing that is. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. For the for the Americans and for the Japanese, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. They just don't talk about stuff like that. It doesn't happen. For uh, depends if, if you connect it to health or not. If it's is it about health or is it about hygiene? That's very okay. different. Yeah, the framing is 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 key. It's it's, uh, it's, uh, it's more embarrassing than when it's about health. Yeah. So. You know, going back to the whole kind of like you know awareness you you mentioned is one of the key pieces of of how we're currently designing. If you had to give a shout out to people here now and, and what what they could take away from this and how they might change their process, what what things could they be doing, like actual you know changes to their processes to ensure that they're being respective to um, the the locale that they're designing for? Well, I think in terms of uh awareness when you kind of start or even when you're in the middle of a project it's really important to think about what are the kind of the kind of basic human behaviors and needs or aspirations Mm -hmm. or that are related to the service that you are creating Mm -hmm. and um, once you are able to to name these to wonder what do we know about these kind of basic human behaviors yeah how much do we know about it and how much do we know about kind of meaningful differences within the population that we're designing for yeah global population and for instance your topic is kind of listening to music then of course that has a very different uh, way of a different role in people's lives depending on what kind of cultures they live Mm. Yeah. So, you know, is participatory design and, you know, ensuring that you've got an inclusive, diverse team, that's, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's only going so far. There's still, there's still bits beyond, like that we need to consider beyond that. Like it's, it's, it's everything about how we approach and how we document and how we derive insights and how we take those insights into action. The whole process really needs to be, you know, I don't say rethought or redesigned, but I've used that and I've spoken about that in the past. But from what you're saying here is there's some fundamental things that we need to reconsider. Yeah, we can go to different levels here, I think. Yeah. Participation obviously is something with a quite long history as well, decades. Hmm. And that has evolved over time as well, hmm. I would say. Yeah. Um, at the moment, perhaps as I see it, its main function is um, to allow people a bit more kind of control hmm. over their own environment and, and the kind of system that they are part of, that they, they need to survive, basically. So a good example, perhaps, is the, the energy system. There's clearly a big issue with the climate emergency we're in, hmm. and lots of people kind of feel the need to have kind of bigger control over how they use energy, where the energy is coming from. And these traditionally, uh, since industrial times, of course, have been very big systems. Yeah. Since uh, mid-20th century, for sure. And you took for granted 
that electricity is coming out of a socket. You know, yeah. Second for what's behind it, but people have started to think about that now. Yeah. So that think... that's participatory design, I think, needs to kind of become more important, actually, hmm. at the moment, especially when we think about service design. If you see electricity as a service, how do you actually become part of that? Yeah. As a, as a... Well, one of the things that I think the lockdown has given, definitely locally here in Ireland, is the interconnectedness of the rest of the world. So you're right in saying that electricity comes out of, you know, a, a sort of this socket on the wall and people are going to go, it just happens. But in previous times, it would have been a case of like, you know, water generation, whatever it was to give that power, you would have seen it. You would have, you would have potentially smelt it as well if it was, you know, coming from a factory. So they, they realized that the stuff was being burnt to, to generate so they could make that connectedness. But here I noticed that things were happening in China, whatever, and start of February, Ireland were like, oh, well, it's, it's over there. You know, it's not going to happen to us. But then the the ships stopped sailing from China and the, the stock and the shops started to, you know, disintegrate and people were like well, where how come i can't get these parts you know china's in lockdown so it was this whole kind of sort of realization that like okay well everything is connected it's not just magically appearing here the food is not just the magically appearing things are starting to change and i've seen it amongst our own circular friends definitely people are getting a little bit more concerned and a little bit more aware about how they're living and the changes that they've made and how not all of them are bad. Uh, there's been quite a lot of good come out of this whole lockdown and, and sort of reflection and reevaluation of how we're cur currently living. Yeah. So, so an interesting response, for instance, to uh, a problem you're mentioning there has been the, the repair cafes that exist for longer already. The which cafes? Repair cafes. Oh, so people beer, go ca beer cafes. Repair. So or people repair go there with a, a broken product. Ah. And there's tears there. And they they offer you a cup of coffee, but also they try to repair your toaster or your coffee machine, things like that. So that's kind of responding to this kind of precarious supply chain supply chain that you just mentioned. Yeah. That you basically order a new product because you can't repair it anymore. These people do mm. repair it. They're volunteers, generally. It's quite a, many of them around the world by now. And um, this is a way of designing a new service, basically, that is a response, a very participatory response, I think, to mm. actually, I take it for granted, it's just arriving on the shelf and I can buy it. And when it's yeah. gone, I, I throw it in the bin. Yeah. I haven't seen any of these repair cafes, but it sounds fantastic. And it's, it's, I am actually a repair cafe myself in my own household. My little girl calls me the repair man. So, um, I would happily, I would happily use one of those services if they existed in Dublin. Yeah, I'll have a look. They might. Yeah, no, I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely look out for that. So yeah, I'm just trying to think. Is, just to get on that, that there is, I think, a, a task for participatory design to look more at those kind of services. Mm -hmm. design has perhaps been stuck a bit uh, in, in products still a lot as well. Mm. Kind of how do you help people in designing something that is, is then mass produced. But I think particular design in kind of local services is, is really valuable and, and possible. 
I'm really interested in um, how participatory design can actually play a bigger role in, in service design. Okay. And in design. Yeah. Those, particularly those really big systems that we have created that we're depending on completely, like electricity mm -hmm. or very big supply chains products all the way to China. We need to find more local, actually, solutions to that. And I think that can only be done in a way uh, by involving people locally as well and, and giving people kind of control and also a say over those systems. Mm. And participatory design as a, as a method would give us that. I think so, yeah. I think it's quite close to this idea of, of the commons, which could solve a lot of these kind of things, I think. Yeah. Have you any experience? Can you give us some examples that you, you at Standby might be using in that space and how you're exploring and developing uh, participatory design? Yeah, I guess what we're one good example is the work we've been doing with what design can do over the past years. Hmm. So that's a design platform, I guess, what design can do. They, they run conferences, but they also run challenges since four or five years now design challenges globally, and we are their research partners. So we basically uh, write the briefs for those challenges. Ah, okay, you're right, yeah. Do that together again with our uh, global network to have these multiple perspectives from in the world on actually what should be done. So the recent, the most recent one we have done is around energy mm -hmm. and uh, kind of looking at how how can we create green energy for everyone. And of course, if you look at that from a perspective of Delhi or the perspective of Mexico City or the perspective of Amsterdam, it's quite different. Yeah. But the participatory here comes into uh, play because we we set up a, a format, basically, where we create a, a brief, kind of a global brief, and then we ask those local partners to kind of turn those into local briefs, hmm. so add things to it. And, create a local perspective on it and then run workshops locally with designers, but also uh, other experts to kind of sharpen those briefs a bit more even to really also see what, what resonates with local designers. What do you want to work on? And then when the, the challenge is launched, we ask, um, we not, not just launch the briefing, but also a, a workshop package, as we call it for everyone to kind of involve people around them in exploring those questions nice. before they come up with ideas. So it's kind of a multiplication allows many people to get involved. Yeah, nice. So is that something you're currently running at the moment? That currently so the energy one has been completed last autumn. We're currently okay. preparing one on uh, waste. It's probably going to be the no waste challenge and that will be launched uh, mid-October. Nice. I was going to say it would be interesting to see how that would have worked in the in the lockdown. Yeah, well, hopefully by the time we launch, people can meet a bit more as well. It's already happening. But uh, during lockdown, you can perfectly prepare for something like this through mm. uh, connections that we want now here as well. Yeah. So, Bas, we're, we're coming towards the end of, of, of the episode here. We, we mentioned at the start there that you're a partner and this is doing and you've got two wonderful courses that uh, you've just launched. Do you want to tell us a bit about those? Sure. So 
where we kind of see a need um, at the moment that we try to respond to is actually in in coaching people on their projects. So the course is really for people who are already doing uh, projects, and we've uh, defined two themes at the moment to kind of let them benefit from the experience that that we have and um, kind of learn from some presentations that we do and discussions around those, but then also mm. coach them personally in their projects over the course of about two months. And at the end of those courses, we basically uh, bring back the lessons that we've learned from all that coaching to everyone as a group. Yeah. And I say we because um, there's uh, partners from me from the REACH network that are running this together with me, and again, to have a global perspective. So yeah. one course is around um, care and how can we put uh, care more at the center of uh, of the organizations and projects that we work on. Mm -hmm. Very top thing around this uh, these times because there's kind of a global re-evaluation yeah. re of, of care, you could say. And that's run with uh, studios based in Hong Kong, Singapore, Barcelona, and wow, I think Mexico. Yeah. No, sorry. Exciting. And then the other one uh, uh, that you did is around kind of moving from human-centered design to life-centered design. Yeah. Which is also very much came out of that work we did with uh, what design can do and kind of looking at the climate emergency from a broader than just a human perspective. Yeah, that's going to be a really good one. I might actually try and go to that one. Well, well <laughs> you, could, if you have a project that is kind of running at a time. So that's kind of a requirement we have. Yeah. People who participate, that you really have a project yourself that you're working on. Or maybe it could also be a task from an organization that you're um, kind of working for that has a relation to this. Because then you will learn most when you can immediately apply it in your own work. That's the yeah. idea. You're doing. Doing, doing design. Doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the doing. Well, Bas, um, it's been brilliant speaking with you today. If people want to reach out to you, how might they go about doing that? Uh, there's different ways of doing that. There's, you can uh, kind of see our website. Uh, yeah. and get more idea of the work that we do. That's stby.eu I'll put a link in the show notes great and there's also my uh, Twitter account that's kind of on and off when I'm at an event I sometimes tweet a lot and then a lot not yeah. that's that's hello but yeah. so you can put a link as well and then uh, yeah through those you'll find the other connections I get like the excellent. ones from the region as well yeah excellent Bas it was fantastic chatting with you today thanks so much for being on Bring Design Closer you're welcome my pleasure so there you have it that's all for this episode of bringing design closer if you like this episode feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design product management design research and much much more now, if you're interested in design and innovation training feel free to check out our business thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders join the this is hcd newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network and also if you're interested apply to join the slack community on thisishcd.com stay safe and until next time take care